Welcome to My Dog Ate My Book Report, a podcast where two, although this time it's actually three, uh, weirdo 30-somethings take turns introducing each other to a formative book from childhood the other has never read. I am Ren, they, them. I'm Brandon, he, him, and we've got our first ever special guest. Hi, I'm Nuance, she, her, and technically I'm a 40-something. Ooh. Oh. Just turned 41 a week ago, basically. I forgot about that. I saw that on, on the internet. And yeah, happy birthday. Thank you. So on all of our episodes that uh, end in a even increment of five, we do a special thing. So this time, it's our very first special guest. And I'm super excited about this. Another, you know, New England person <laughs> to outnumber Brandon. East Coast is best coast. What are we supposed to say here? <laughs> I mean, I'm from the East Coast, so I'm okay with uh. that. I just don't live there anymore. Oh, that's right. right. That's fair. Also, I do want I want to thank you both for having me on here so I can just natter on about books, especially one this the ones that are so formative to who I am. So thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, normally here we are doing the thing where where one of us hasn't read the book while the other one has, but in this case, uh, neither Rin nor I have read this book before. So you are our guide. Yeah, this is definitely a failing of the main education system. I, I did actually read this as one of my school books in third grade, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna have to agree with you. Although I don't know if it hadn't been for my third grade teacher, because I think this wasn't an official book like that we read specifically for class, but in third grade I think we were still having a reading time where we were just reading random books together as a class without getting graded on it. So mm. yeah, I don't think if it wasn't for Mrs. Burns, I might never have known this either. I do want to, we haven't talked about geography since our very first introduction episode. So I think for the purpose of discussing whether or not we read this in school, I went to school in Maine. Brandon, you went to school. I was in school in Virginia. Uh, it does not surprise me that I did not read this book in school because yeah. uh, I was from a very white area. And though I didn't know it at the time, in retrospect, a lot of my like grade schooling was like very lost cause myth kind of Southern education. So yeah, not not shocked that I wasn't exposed to a lot of books that uh, dealt with some of these kinds of issues. Fascinating. Understandable, but also fascinating. So I grew up in central Connecticut, and I'm not actually sure if we would have read this normally, but around when I started elementary school... The Hartford School District was actually very close to losing their, their school accreditation. And so a lot of the students that were would normally go to a Hartford public school ended up getting bused to some of the surrounding towns, uh, including my hometown. So they would go to school with us, and the vast majority of them, at least, were also Black. So I don't know if it was a school initiative to incorporate more black history into the curriculum or personal teacher initiative or if it was just something that like she'd read on her own and had decided that yes this needs to be part of our education but the stuff you don't think about when you're a third grader but so some one of those combination or maybe even something I hadn't haven't occurred to me but we ended up reading it and I don't know if I've run across anyone else who ever had as part of their school, their overall schoolhood, childhood words are very good. I'm good at them. Yeah. 
Have we said what the book is yet? We haven't. Let's, oh. uh... <laughs> it's uh... a mystery this whole time. <laughs> yeah. So we we asked Nuance what what she would be excited to have us read, and there was actually a, a pretty good list of things that Nuance has read that that I haven't read. <laughs> so we might need to do this more. Uh, but yeah, what are we reading? We are reading "Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry" by Mildred D. Taylor. Uh, it's part of the Logan family series. Apparently, book three in a direct uh series of five books and one of i think nine overall that deal with the uh mississippi in the south in the 1930s to 1940s the book spans a year in the life of cassie logan a nine-year-old black girl in 1933 mississippi who lives with her family on her family's cotton farm it is the year that she finally comes to understand racial tensions between the black residents of her small town and white trying to find her place in a highly racialized society where so many people believe she is lesser because of the color of her skin. From her first introduction to outright racism in a local store, to discovering how a local white landowner schemes to claim her family's land for himself, to learning just how harshly black people can and would be punished for merely being suspected of crimes. All of this while still navigating the difficulties of school, family, and friendships that any nine-year-old might face then and now. There are definitely some content warnings to be aware of for this book. So we've got anti-Black racism in the Jim Crow South. It's it's prevalent throughout the whole thing and very heavy. So be mindful of that for your own mental well-being going into reading this book or listening to this episode. Mention of lynching, mention of fires, a lot of racially motivated violence, including but not limited to tar and feathering, burning, and more. And I also want to acknowledge... To nuance specifically. Thank you for coming on, and I wanted to acknowledge that introducing two white people to this book is an act of emotional labor. (laughs) No, uh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for being willing to go on this journey with me. Like I said, this was a very foundational book for me in a lot of ways, and anytime I can introduce people to it, it's a good day. But anytime I can specifically introduce white people to it, because I know that It shifted a lot of what I knew or thought I knew even as a kid and continues to do so now. So, and I can only imagine kind of what it's shifted for you. And in fact, that was one of the discussion questions I I posted. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, for for sure. It it was a lot. A lot, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So we did already dig a little bit into uh, whose selection it is and the significance. You said about third grade? Yes, I was eight years old, so it might have been fourth grade. I mean, I would, I would bet Miss Ostapchik over Miss Burns. Miss Burns, if you're hearing this, I'm so sorry, but like, for <laughs> reals. Um, so yes, I was eight years old when I read this. Do you have any strong memories of how you felt about it when you read it for the first time? And and have you read it since? Well, I mean, I definitely read it for for this pod- podcast. I don't know if I'd read it since gosh i don't know if i've read it since middle school but so much of it stayed with me 
one thing I remember, and this is very interesting. So I was one of the few black kids in my class because, again, it was me and the kids from Project Concern and maybe like one or two others. So there were very few of us in the um, in each classroom itself. And I remember feeling a little almost put on the spot because it is a very odd feeling to be one of the few black or brown faces in a room when you are reading about such a highly racialized topic. And there is kind of an unspoken expectation that not only will this mean more to you, but maybe you should also be more grounded in it. And so it was it was a very weird time to be reading this book and a very weird, unspoken social interaction while we were reading it. As for reading it as a child, like I definitely... You know, uh, especially when Cassie is dealing with her younger brothers, because I had a younger brother, so I was able to to kind of identify with her on that. But there was a whole lot of this book that I couldn't identify with at that time because our lives were so different. And I had also not yet quite had that kind of racial come to Jesus moment. There had been several times where I had faced you know, racial slurs and got into fights on the back of the bus and all of that. But I hadn't yet had that that strict wake-up call. And part of that might be also because, you know, I'm a light-skinned mixed-race Black woman. So things were a little slower to kind of unfold for me socially. Not everybody knew I was Black immediately upon looking at me, especially not kids. So... Again, by the time I really got to that point, I was older than Cassie was. So a lot of this, it was meaningful. It was hurtful. I found a lot of my family in the familial interactions, but the greater societal ones, I hadn't quite, I didn't yet grok on on an emotional level then. Uh, That came later. And then when it came later, it was a sucker punch, let me tell you. So uh, that's kind of where where I was. Gosh, I can, I I can only imagine <laughs> that. It definitely realizing that she was sort of coming to terms with that part of the way through the book. I it took a second because me going into it, I sort of knew that a lot of these interactions were racially motivated, and it took me a little while to realize that she was just sort of viewing some of this stuff as, oh, that person's just a jerk, not that the whole world is potentially a jerk. Yeah. And that was very, very impactful. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't imagine uh, having anything resembling the emotional intelligence to appreciate any of this in third grade. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this was definitely a really powerful read. I did not encounter books that dealt with race to this degree until high school. and And so... It definitely kind of took me back to that period in my life more so when I also had a little bit more of the historical context and the reality because I really elementary school and middle school in Virginia when I was growing up, like I said, was very, very lost cause myth about things. And it wasn't until I got to high school that like some of my teachers would say, look, the standardized testing is going to 
ask what the Civil War was about, and it's going to expect you to bubble in states' rights. And that's not true, but that's what you need to put on the test because that's what the test wants. But, you know, in elementary school, I just kind of had a very, like, slavery was bad, but it's over now. Yay. Uh, Kind of perspective. I also, um, I think think my whole grade had two or three black kids, I want to say, out of 70 or 80 students. So very, very white area and... We just didn't really go there, and there was never really any reason for anybody to challenge like what were what was being taught to us um or what we're being exposed to and and I don't recall reading any books that either as as assigned reading or on my own that dealt with the the difficulties of the history of race relations in the u s and the you know generational trauma that goes with everything. No stuff I didn't encounter till high school, at least. I, you know, a, a similar upbringing. I was raised in rural Maine, and and similarly, I don't remember reading any books that even contained black characters until books that I read on my own. Uh, and I know that I read the, I think probably the first book was one of the American Girl books. Addie, I think, was the character that was introduced. And that was something that I read on my own because I was kind of obsessed with those books in terms of just eating up anything historical that I could find. When it came to not school, my mom was very liberal, but also sort of like liberal in that way where she took in a lot of media that was like, yes, this is about black people or or relations with, with other folks, but it centers white people and how heroic they can be when they're such good allies. And I remember a movie that she watched a lot was like Fried Green Tomatoes. But that has just a lot of like, I I like that movie. I think it's cute. But that has a lot of like, look how good these white people are in this movie because they're not assholes to the black people. And it's not really like about the black people. They're just kind of a prop for how wholesome and good the two white ladies are. So I, I had a lot of like that media in my life. But nothing that really, like, centered the experience like this. And I kind of wish that I had had this or knew that this existed. <laughs> and I know the first thing I ever had to read for school that had anything to do with uh, race relations or the black experience was, I think I think it, I was, like, junior year of high school, I had to read A Raisin in the Sun. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. I think that's the first the first thing I ever was assigned. And I thought going into this that maybe this was just like a failing of the rural Maine school system, but I think this is just a failing of the school system in general. Possibly by design. Probably by design. And if not deliberate design, which I would not put it past to be deliberate design, just the kind of, I don't see why it would be a problem. Everything seems fine. Just that kind of benevolent neglect. That also very much plagues our school systems. That all being said, I have several notes in my phone about how, (laughs) in all caps, Mama is amazing. She's like a superhero. I loved her. My favorite characters in this book were Mama and Little Man. Because Little Man was just feisty and always running out the door with the bigger kids. But also really just wanted to stay tidy. And I really liked him a lot. Yeah, Little Man's great. He's he's the best. And through Little Man, we see we get that first real introduction to 
systemic racism because i mean there's the bit with the the bus and how it it tries to attack them but you know that could sort of just be like one bus driver who really sucks slight aside do we get to swear yes okay cool yeah okay in that case yeah that could just be one bus driver who is a racist asshole and you know you have the that they don't have buses but a lot of that it could still really be just chalked up to poverty because, you know, they're talking about the not wearing shoes to school except on the first day and how they're all in their Sunday clothes. And even those are a lot like faded and patched. So it's um, what you have is a book at that, like for those first few chapters that could technically be about any poor family in the South who with just this addition of this one racist asshole bus driver. It's not until we get to the, the school, not even, I mean, with the school, again, we have the, the signs of poverty and not really being supported, but it's not till we see little man throw his, um, his book on the ground after all this excitement about getting books, because this is the first time, but you know, you see him throw, well, you see him, first complain that it's dirty and then you see him throw it on the ground and and say i don't want it and there when cassie finally opens up her book and you see the various conditions and it's just like new white excellent white all the way down to poor and only that is when it gets passed over to and next to it has the word nigra n-i-g-r-a and that's the first time Cassie and Little Man have heard that word, especially as to describe themselves. And just looking at the the dates, you can see that this textbook is at least 12 years out of date because the first time it was issued was September of 1922. And it's not until September of 33, so 11 years, when the condition is very poor, does it move from the white school system and is given over uh, by the county to the black. And this, again, is the first time that they have had books in their classroom. So it's through Little Man and his compulsion towards tidiness that we actually start to realize that, no, this isn't just a case of a poor district or a poor group of families this is something that is systemic going through the entirety of the school system and that's when we start talking about how you know their school year is from october to march because the kids have to get out and start helping in the fields and how a lot of people a lot of the kids stop going to school after fourth grade and then when we compare that to the the Jefferson Davis, where they have the normal school year that goes till May, and they are expected to go up through high school, and it is just how incredibly different that their lives are, even though their schools are just a few miles, like the kids have to pass the Jefferson Davis school on the way to their own. So these schools are separated by maybe a few miles at best, but societally it's you know like the opposite sides of the grand canyon the thing that stuck out to me the most about the the book thing was and i i know that in third grade i would not have had the vocabulary to know that this was a microaggression the when it says race of student when the student is white it's capitalized 
But then when it goes to the black students, it's no longer capitalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that might have been something I picked up this first reading too. Like, hey, wait a minute. But yeah, uh, that's, that is one of the reasons that I, I do like Little Man because you do see his attempts and his obsession to keep clean in, again, a society that consistently tries to make them dirty in both physical and emotional and how they think of them. I mean, because in this time and going up for many decades after, like there, I know there was a soap commercial, uh, well, a soap advertisement that featured a little black child uh, trying to scrub themselves clean uh, and therefore white with soap. Like that's a very frequent theme in a lot of these uh advertisements and so in that character of little man you have a full repudiation of that but you still have to deal with all of society trying to tell him otherwise yeah i this is the part of the book too where i wrote the first uh mama is amazing in all caps because she she goes and covers with paper the parts of the books that that list out the previous students and just, you know, took her kid's side on that. And I, I just thought that was great. Yeah. I love mama. I really liked that, that victory, you know, so to speak, you know, it doesn't plan out all great by the end, but I thought mama and, 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 you know, to a lesser degree, like Papa as well, when he's around those moments where they try to do their best, to raise their children in this world that the children don't entirely understand how it's going to react to them as they get older. I I thought that those moments were both like in the moment, a little bit cathartic, but also heartbreaking knowing that like that's sort of small compared to the amount stacked against them and the amount of injustices they suffer in the book and, and implicitly will continue to suffer. Right. Oh gosh, the fact that you called it a vi- a victory just really highlights that later later mama gets fired for ostensibly what she did to the books, but really it's about you know her probably uh, I'm trying to find the right words for this. Like I feel like any a small attempt they make to just let themselves have some humanity in this society just gets stomped on. Yep. Mr. Granger puts like a gloss, like I'm doing it for the school system. You've defaced school property. You're not teaching the Mississippi curriculum. But, you know, it's it is very blatant that it's just you have crossed me. And so now I'm going to continue to make life incredibly difficult for you. And also, I know you need money. I want your land. So this is just like a win, win, win for me. I hate Mr. Granger so much. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, he's he's awful. I did want to say this this moves into a section of the book where they have a they have a little a small victory over the school bus which is always trying to run them <laughs> off the road and they uh with some intelligent uh sneak outing of Stacy the oldest brother they they shovel some holes in the road when it's raining because they know that'll end up washing it out into something more significant and the bus falls in and breaks down but then they feel so bad about it and i wrote 
a note that I just, I wish the characters didn't feel bad for actions that were completely justifiable. Yeah, no. I wish they could allow themselves to be happy that that happened. The thing that struck me was not the, them feeling bad. It was the fear that they had later because they had just started learning about the Nightmen and right. what happens. And that fear of such brutal retaliation. And here we're going to start talking about like all the really horrible triggery stuff, folks. So just be aware. But like, you know, because they just learned that the, the men had been... Uh, that several of, of the men that they know had been taken out and literally set on fire for the audacity of being accused of winking at a white woman, which, you know, that just that's almost a direct callback to to Emmett Till and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're starting to finally really learn that this world is not safe for them. And when they do, as you said earlier, like do things to assert their humanity and pick themselves up and retaliate against white society for the literal harm that they do, they will be punished immediately and swiftly and in absolutely horrific ways. So, and it didn't hit me that hard when I was first reading it as a kid, like, I, I, I didn't know what the Nightmen were. I, I mean, you learn about it in the book, but I didn't immediately put it towards like, oh, this is the KKK. This is danger and, and fear. You know, this is this is something that hangs over their lives. So for them to actually start seeing that and realizing that this could happen to them, uh, which is then later backed up by Mr. Morrison's story, who had also been burned. And he's talking about how this happened when he was six. And, uh, you know, his mother went in to get his, his little sisters and none of them ever came out. He was the only survivor. So they're even right to be afraid because their age isn't going to save them. And that's just like such a heavy realization to have. As a kid, and even later on, you know, reading this again and understanding that in a completely different and deeper way, having it as an adult. Yeah, in the aftermath of the bus thing, like I, I fully expected that to be like the inciting incident for like the rest of the book. I, I was just like waiting for this is going to start a bunch of dominoes falling where the, the Logans... Uh, if not the children themselves, then perhaps uh, Papa or Mama are going to like suffer the direct consequences of this of this incident, whether or not anybody can prove that they did it. Obviously, and and you know, on the one hand, I was a little bit relieved when nothing worse happened, right? But on the other hand, that's just one of many such incidents uh, throughout the book. I felt throughout the whole experience of reading this book, just this tightening in my chest and this dread yeah. about the horrible stuff that I figured was probably incoming. Uh, I actually have a question. So, Brandon, did you also have that, that dread and that fear as you read it? Your, what were your expectations, both of you? Like, did you have an idea of what you thought would happen or just, just from, like, reading the back and knowing what it was about? Or what, what were your expectations going into this book? So for me, I 
I, I didn't read like the back of the book or anything like that because I kind of wanted to go in as fresh as uh, possible. Mainly based upon things I read later in life that dealt with this sort of, of racism in this period. I was expecting it to kind of fit a similar mold of there's some sort of slice of life stuff and we get to see how they're living, how they're like just scraping by how even poor white folks are better off than they are, no matter how much they deserve that or not. And that eventually there would be some significant moment where one of the family or possibly like Mr. Morrison or somebody would be blamed for something that probably they didn't do and, you know, hurt or or killed or whatever the case may be. So I was kind of waiting for like that shoe to drop specifically. And of course it doesn't quite, there's no like singular moment of that other than perhaps TJ near the end. How about you, Ren? I also don't read the back of books, especially when it comes to books for this podcast that somebody else has picked out for me to read. I go in just not knowing anything about even the genre half the time. So I just had the cover and the particular cover of, of the book that I have, because um, I have seen I saw that there are many different covers, but this is the one where she's sort of standing in front of a like billowing cloud with her arms crossed. Mm-hmm. It gave me nothing to go on. <laughs> so I was like, okay, uh, I see cotton. Maybe this is just going to be, you know, kind of a little house in the prairie, but, you know, different time period, slightly different time period. But then when they started, basically when they started talking about the burning, I started to get a little worried that I was in something deeper. Then after the bus and the the night of them panicking that they were going to get caught for it. Then when that sort of resolved, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I don't have to be quite so so scared. This was just like a moment of panic and then everything will go back to normal. And then everything just kept getting snowballing and getting worse. So the dread just kept compounding. And Brandon is sort of right in that there was no like one huge thing, but I kind of feel like it was more about like the death of a thousand paper cuts, really just like, their entire existence is all these little things. Yeah. I felt like the end being ambiguous actually just made it more scary and just left me sitting there staring off into space for a few minutes like, oh, gosh. It's intense. It's funny. So I read this book with more fear and dread now than I ever did at eight, even though I know exactly what happens. I I know who gets harmed, who does not. Like, I knew every plot point because this has embedded itself so hard in my brain that even not having read it for 20, maybe even as many as 30 years, I could still tell you pretty much beat for beat what will happen. But having a much better understanding of what could have happened made this book a much scarier read than it ever did as as a kid. Seeing Cassie with her temper and knowing how easily it could get her in trouble. Like, we have that moment in the store in Strawberry where um, she doesn't understand why they're being made to wait 
when he's waiting on even just like a little white girl as opposed to the, the white adults that she could understand or when she knocks into Lily and Jean and doesn't apologize and just all the times that her temper flares up in the direction of white folks and how dangerous that could be for her, how dangerous the boycott that her parents organize to go to, to shop at Vicksburg instead of, you know, what is basically a company store only for plantation owners. Like they do so many brave things and every one of them just comes with a lump in your throat because there is no guarantee that this is going to turn out like, you know, a movie where they do the right thing and therefore they're rewarded. And they're not, you know, as, as we said, for organizing the boycott down in Vicksburg, Mama is fired. For getting some of their own back against the bus... You know, the kids then have like a week where they live in fear that somebody's going to come and harm them. It's just over and over. You see all the things that that they do and that happens to them. And there's just this dread, like like Brandon called it, it, um, that it's just sitting there because you're waiting because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And I have noticed that I actually get the same feeling when I watch any movie or show about black excellence that's that happens back at that time like uh, I think it was I was watching Hidden Figures and through the whole movie that was you know about three incredibly brilliant black women I was waiting for someone to come and try to put them in their place just like with brutality more than anything else. And again, they face microaggressions and segregated bathrooms and the difference between beads and pearls and all that. But I spent the whole movie waiting for disaster to strike, for violence to happen against them. And in this book, even knowing exactly what was going to happen, I still had that feeling, that expectation that at any moment, violence could break out against them Because honestly, any moment it could have. I recognize part of the way through the book that something had changed in me in the reading of this, where after the bus, I I wrote that phone note about, I wish they didn't feel bad about, you know, them doing something that was totally justified. And I was sort of like super rooting them on about doing the shoveling thing. And then when they got to the scene where their uncle was driving them through town, and there's this bridge Mm -hmm. where only one car can pass at a time. And it's sort of just known that if you're a black person, you need to let the white people cross the bridge before you. You just need to be deferential. And Uncle Hammer decides to just bowl over and and drive through the bridge and ignore the fact that there's white people that we're about to cross. And instead of rooting him on, I was just like, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. No, 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 no. Don't do it. Something terrible is going to happen if you do this. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it it went from me being like, yeah, do do the do the revenge thing to being scared for them to do the revenge thing. Mm-hmm. I was anxious for a while about Uncle Hammer's car just because there was such a an emphasis on the fact that it was very much like uh Mr. Granger's car. Yeah. But a little newer. That was another moment where I was just like this could like just just this fact that he is driving around in this car could just 
make like the the Wallaces or someone else just decide that they need to put Uncle Hammer in his place, right? So I was kind of waiting for that to possibly be another incendiary thing that also never quite came around. Although some of the some of the white folks definitely like make clear that they do not think that Uncle Hammer should have a car like that. Yeah, just on principle. Yeah, you can you can really just read in those interactions that these people think the fact that this you know black man has this nice car is him being uppity it's a direct insult to them for him to have this thing and i think both of your thoughts kind of meld together to so show both like how tiny and minimal anything can be that would set somebody off whether it's having a nice car not calling uh somebody ms or or mr going across a bridge any any of these tiny things can uh you know set off again incredible violence and and ren you mentioned about how you're like no don't do it don't do it turn around uh, which is exactly what i was thinking at the same time but again it's just if this is what you're feeling reading a book just imagine how much more it would be like living that and how hard it was for any of these people to kind of stand up and do things like go across a bridge or organize a boycott because, you know, again, they live with, they have that fear that knowing that any of this could be the spark that sets off an entire bomb and then forcing themselves to do it anyway, because living with that fear strips them of their dignity and their dignity is literally the only thing they have. And even that is kind of, uh, uh, conditional because again at any time somebody can come and do their best to strip it from them so it's just you really get a feeling of like how difficult it, w- it was how much you don't want them to do these things even as you're rooting for them to do these things because you're scared of the consequences that could result and the questions of like if I were black and living in 1933 Mississippi would I have had the the gumption to do these things? Would I bring my nice new car down from the north to Mississippi where I know that, that they're going to take it as an insult? Would I have the temper? Would I let myself boycott? Or would I just take the, you know, would I just kind of let things happen to keep myself and my family safe? I obviously can't say how I would act, but I kind of assume that I would probably also just try to be invisible. Because I recognize that a lot of the the loud stuff that I'm able to do in my life in the current day is because I have the shield of being white. So. One of the most powerful things in the book that I thought was pretty important thing for me to read was on page 129 jeremy is sort of the like the middle middle kid in the sims family which is largely largely a group of absolute racist jerks but he he tries to befriend stacy and the others and comes by on christmas to give them a christmas gift and then he kind of like leaves the mother gives this little speech about how even if it seems like Jeremy is a friend right now, 
to kind of always be vigilant because um, she says, white people may demand our respect, but what we give them is not respect, but fear. What we give to our own people is far more important because it's given freely. And I, I think this might've been the first time in my life that I was able to really internalize as a white person, how even with the allies and the nice ones, black people have to be guarded around us because they never know, you know, when we're going to not be nice anymore. And it was just a very impactful section. Yeah. Papa also has a thing that he says, um, now you could be right about Jeremy making a much finer friend than TJ ever will be. The trouble is, down here in Mississippi, it costs too much to find out. So I think you'd better not try. Again, yeah, that that hits different now. And I, the first time I read it, I was very offended, actually, uh, by that passage. Because, again, I'm mixed race. My father was white. I grew up in central Connecticut, so the vast majority of my friends were white. And, you know... I would throw down at the in defense of the friendship and how much my uh, you know my dad loved me and all of this stuff, um, and I still would to be clear. Uh, I'm married to a white man, like like there is a I'm not going to deny it. So this really kind of hurt my feelings when I read it. Like how could you say that? But as you said, now reading it as an adult understanding that that gulf is so great that in 1933 Mississippi it is very hard if not impossible to be bridged two things there is another book in the series novella it's a short story the it's called the friendship and it's actually about a friendship between a black man um I think I don't remember his name. I'm going to have to search for it in a sec. But and his friendship with Caleb Wallace, who's one of the Wallace brothers that that we read a lot about in uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry as, you know, one of the many horrific racists, white people that that the family has to watch out about. And Caleb and um, gosh, I'm sorry, I, I'm going to ha- I'm going to have to find his uh, his name now. Uh, but Caleb and uh, the the black main character of this story uh, were friends growing up. Oh, Mr. Tom B. That's who it is. And when they were young, they were friends. And Caleb, uh, one one big thing in that time in Mississippi is that all white people were addressed with an honorific, like. Lillian Jean, who is Jeremy's sister, big sister, needs to be referred to as Ms. Lillian Jean, even though she's like maybe 13 or 14. And omitting that honorific when you talk to a white person isn't as, once again, grounds for violence. But Caleb told Mr. Uh, told Tom when they were young that he that Tom would never, ever have to refer to him as Mr. Whatever because they were friends. And now they are adults and Caleb has obviously kind of changed his, his stance on that. And, oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't Caleb Wallace. It's John Wallace. Again, it's been a while. Sorry, everybody. And, and so at the very end, they, they have a confrontation. So Tom has just 
used John's first name. Thank you, John. Just put it on my charges there, John. Just put it on my charges. He got as uh, he glanced again at the men and started out. He got as far as the steps. The boys and I turned to go. Then we heard a click. The explosion of a shotgun followed by Mr. Tomby tumbled down the steps, his right leg ripped open by the blast. And then we skip a little. The white men came out and sniggered. Mr. John Wallace, carrying the shotgun, came out on the porch too. He'd stood there, his face solemn, and said, You made me do that, Tom. I could have killed you, but I ain't wanting to kill you because you done saved my life and I'm a Christian man, so I ain't forgetting that. But this here disrespecting me gotta stop, and I means to stop it now. You gotta keep in mind you ain't nothing but a nigger. You gotta learn to watch your mouth. You gotta learn to address me proper. You hear me, Tom? Mr. Tom B. sat in silence, staring at the bloody leg. Tom, you hear me? Now, slowly, Mr. Tom B. raised his head and looked up at John Wallace. Oh yeah, I hears you all right. I hears you. But let me tell you something, John. You was John to me when I saved your sorry life, and you gave me your word you was always going to be John to me as long as I lived. So you might as well go ahead and kill me, because that's what you're going to be, John. You hear me, John? Till the judgment day. Till the earth opens up, uh, opens itself up, and the fires of hell comes and takes your ungrateful soul. You hear me, John? You hear me? John, John, John. Till the judgment day, John. And with that, he raised himself to one elbow and began to drag himself down the road. Like, that is what Papa is thinking about when he says that you can't trust friendship made in childhood, that it costs too much to find out because they have no guarantee that when Jeremy grows up, he's going to be anything other than Mr. John Wallace going back on the friendships and the promises he made as a child because he has realized where he stands in society and to not insist on that respect and that decorum will lower himself in the eyes of the whites as well. Which again, we see in the form of Mr. Jameson, the lawyer, who helps out the, the families and ends up... um he ends up suffering for it in Let the Circle Be Unbroken. We get more of what happened to TJ after his arrest. And Mr. Jameson is going to represent him and there's going to be a trial. And because he is so firm on representing TJ and making sure there's a trial, his office is burned down. His dog is poisoned. Like, it's not just that this violence comes to black people. It will also come to white folks who don't maintain that forcible racist separation. It's fear all the way down. Jeez. Yeah, I didn't I didn't understand until you said that what the deal was with calling Lily Lily what's her face? Lily uh, and Jean. Miss Lily and Jean. I, I didn't yeah, I just didn't understand the honorifics thing. I thought it was just like a her thing or something. Nope. That's why Cassie doesn't go and take her vengeance on Lily and Jean, which again, I loved until she had enough dirt that Lily and Jean wouldn't bring it up because so Lily and Jean, uh, when they go to Strawberry, right after Cassie has that terrifying encounter where she has the audacity to tug on the, the white shopkeep's shirt and kind of demand that he wait on them instead of waiting on this little white girl, he ends up 
you know, yelling at her and Stacy makes her get out, like th- basically throws her out of the store for her own protection, but she doesn't understand. And she stumbles into Lillian Jean and Lillian Jean pushes her and says she's got to walk in the gutter. And she doesn't, she, she's rude to Lillian Jean, including just calling her Lillian Jean. And Mr. Sims, Lillian Jean's father, uh, like twists her arm, this grown man twisting this nine-year-old girl's arm until she apologizes and refers to Miss Lily, to Lillian Jean as Ms. Lillian Jean. And after that, uh, she comes up with a scheme where she befriends Lillian Jean and like listens to her gossip and talk about this boy she likes and carries her books to school. And Lillian Jean is just like, well, of course she's doing that. I have, you know, why wouldn't she? And then... Once Cassie has kind of enough dirt on Lillian Jean, she brings her into the woods and like knocks her down and punches her a couple times and refers to her as Lillian Jean. And first Lillian's like, I'm going to tell my dad, um, which again, spark of violence, Cassie dared lay a hand on a white girl. And then Cassie basically has to blackmail her with, if you do that, I will tell everybody about this boy you like and the friends you're being, you know, you're you're talking shit about. So it's only when Lillian Jean is afraid of what will happen to her that she backs off. And even after that, she's just so confused. She she She's like, Cassie, you were such a nice girl. What happened? Because she cannot comprehend the that the disrespect that she gave to Cassie could possibly have any effect on Cassie at all like she doesn't get it yeah i thought that i thought that was really wild when she when she was just so completely dumbfounded about it and i was like are you kidding how did you not know do you guys remember the central park bird watching incident in like 2020 yeah uh, so folks who might not in 2020 there was uh, Christian Cooper, who was a black bird watcher, and this unrelated white lady named Amy Cooper was walking a dog in part of Central Park. And Amy unleashed her dog, uh, which was like against park rules. And Christian was like, hey, you need to leash your dog. And Chris- and she refused. And I guess Christian like tried to get her the dog to come to her because it was just running wild off the leash. And she yelled, don't you touch my dog. And then Christian started recording Amy while Amy placed a call to 911 yelling, there is an African-American man. I'm in Central Park. He's recording me and threatening me. uh, And please send the cops immediately. And Amy Cooper's whole thing is built on the same thing that this book is about. The idea that black men are inherently dangerous to white women. and She's calling the police who now take the position of the lynch mobs that you get in Emmett Till that you got in the book with the burning because she's just playing right into that narrative, which is why she starts off with there is an African-American man and he's threatening me. And so Christian was very lucky that he was recording and that that video went viral so they could see exactly what happened Uh, And how he wasn't threatening Amy. And things could have gone very, very differently. There is the Central Park Five in the 80s where Donald Trump, shockingly, put out like a full page ad saying that they were guilty and needed to face like the ultimate punishment. Because again, they were they were young black men and they got arrested 
for potentially threatening a white woman, which again, didn't happen. But we're still seeing the the echoes of the same exact behavior the threatening white man the uh, the threatening black man the vulnerable white woman and the immediate media and and official outcry of calling him a danger it's all built on the same exact stuff that you saw that you read about in 1933 mississippi yeah yeah that that gets a little bit we talked about Little Man a bit earlier and and how Little Man is one one sort of lens into learning the way that 1930s Mississippi works and, and also, of course, about Cassie and, and Herb learning that people aren't just jerks, they're racist. And um, though it was like maybe less than those two, we also got, I think, that shift in the book at a certain point where clearly Stacy has started to understand as he's like what 12 mm-hmm. that that as as a 12 year old black boy he is entering into that phase where white folks are going to see him as inherently threatening on some level and and cassie doesn't get a lot of that mm-hmm. especially because like it start i think it largely sort of happens off screen when stacy starts to go places with papa and mr morrison and uncle hammer at, at points but like we can kind of glimpse Stacy processing this to some degree and he's just not sharing it with Cassie much, but I thought that was very notable once I kind of realized it was happening. Yeah. I definitely picked up a lot on, on Stacy's uh, experience there. I, I did want to give just like a little bit of a call out to, to the, the third child, Christopher John, uh, because I feel like he didn't have as big a role as the other three kids and and how they were dealing with everything. But I thought the way that he was dealing with things was very interesting where he was the one that always wanted to just follow the rules mm-hmm. and not get in trouble that way. So it was sort of like four different ways of, of dealing with all this stuff that were, that were being highlighted here, which I thought was really interesting. But you're right that that Stacy's uh, experience was highlighted pretty well. Do we want to talk about TJ? Because like the last third of the book is really TJ's kind of TJ's story just through the lens of Cassie. So in the book, uh, TJ and Stacy have a huge falling out. TJ is the reason that Mr. Granger comes to the school and fires mama. He's so mad about not getting being able to cheat on, on a big test that he goes to the Wallace store and complains about her and talks about like how she she covered up the inside of the books where it, it talks about how like all the white people and then uh, once it's very poor it goes to Negras and just bitch you know talk shit about Mama in front of the white people and the white folks who are already mad at her for starting the boycott decide to do something about it. So they send Mr. Granger and I think a couple other members of the board of ed or something to sit in on one of mama's classes. And that leads to her getting fired. And Stacy's just like, you got my mom fired. We can't be friends anymore. And so TJ ends up making friends with Jeremy and Lillian Jean's older sis- uh, older brothers, uh, RW and Melvin. 
and they treat him so good. They buy him clothes. They, they let him call, they let him call them R.W. and Melvin, no misters, which is something that he brags about um, and tries to rub it in everybody's face. They, you know, they bring him places. They let him ride in his, in, in their truck. And he really believes that they are friends. And even though, but like R.W. and Melvin throughout this whole thing, you know, they're, they're laughing at him at how he could believe that, how he could be so stupid. And in the, the, towards the end of the book, they are, they promise to get TJ this beautiful pearl handled pistol that he has wanted since the very beginning of the book. So they drive into Strawberry and they go to the same general store that Cassie had had that trouble in and it's, and it's closed. And uh, TJ's like, well, I guess we'll come back tomorrow. And they're like, no, no, no. We'll just, you go in. Uh, there, there's a window that, that you're skinny enough to go into. Let us in. We'll take it. And if anybody comes down, we'll just tell them that we needed it tonight. And we were going to come in on Monday and pay. It'll be fine. And TJ, being an, an idiot, believes this. So he shimmies in through the window, goes in, unlocks the, the door, for R.W. and Melvin to come in and he sees that they come in wearing black pantyhose uh, over their faces and hands and they get him the pearl handled pistol and then they go in and start uh, bashing against the lock to get to the, the lockbox that has all of the money. And the shopkeeper and his wife hear the noise and they come downstairs and there's a scuffle and um, uh, our, one of R.W. and Melvin, like they push the wife over and she bangs her head and they uh, hit the, the shopkeep with the blunt end of an axe and he goes down and he ends up dying. And TJ's like, this is way more than I had signed up for. Um, This is bad. And so he's just like, no, I'm going to tell like this. This has gone way too far. And RW and Melvin beat him to the point where like his ribs are broken and then they go off to a pool hall after, like they hadn't just robbed, killed, and beaten several people. TJ ends up getting a ride home with a farmer and he ends up going to Stacy because Stacy, he, he's like, Stacy's the only person who can help me. And Stacy and the rest of the kids, uh, they hear TJ's story and they help him home and he gets in through the window because he was like, you know, his mother was like, if you ever, if you stay out of the house uh, overnight again, I'm kicking you out. So he's like, I got to get in. Um, I'll just sneak into the window and pretend I've been in my bed all night. And they help him in. And that's when a lynch mob shows up because RW and Melvin were like, yeah, no, we saw three black kids running with the lockbox. Um, one of them was TJ, who we recognized because we've been hanging out with him. And this lynch mob comes to literally murder TJ. They go into the house. They drag all of the family out, including the children, who uh, several of them are, are preschool age. They tear through his uh, TJ's room. They find the pearl-handled pistol because, again, TJ's an idiot and didn't throw it away. And that's enough evidence. They literally start talking about not only lynching TJ... But somebody has a great idea. Yeah, and since we're so close, we'll just go down to the Logan land and get Papa and Mr. Morrison too. We'll string all of them up. And again, 
Cassie and her brothers are like right in the tree line seeing and hearing all of this. And Stacy tells the little kids to go and they run home and they warn the, the, their dad. And the first thing that Papa does is go and grab a gun. And Mama is just like, no, you cannot do this with a gun. And he's like, we have to go save TJ. And she's like, you can't do it with a gun. If you bring a gun there, they will kill you. And so you have to find another way. And it's storming out. It's not yet raining, but there's thunder and lightning. And what happens is that Papa goes out and sets literally a quarter of his cotton fields on fire. And Mr. Granger is just like, forget lynching anybody. That fire is spreading towards my land. Everybody's, you know come over here and you have to help me save it. And since Mr. Granger is the premier landowner in their town, everybody listens to him. And so TJ, uh, Mr. Jameson, a white lawyer, the white lawyer who's going to help him, he had shown up and he is allowed to take TJ to put TJ in custody with the sheriff who had been amongst the, uh, the, the lynch mob to be clear. And TJ ends up getting taken to jail, which is way better of an outcome than getting lynched right in his front yard in front of his family and friends. So this is kind of the whole last third of the book is watching TJ break, you know, what Papa had said to Stacy in befriending white people and just this slow yet fast roller coaster descent into crime and murder and his own victimization. So that's kind of what happened there. What are y'all? How did you all feel reading that? What what was your headset as you're reading this? Or mindset? That was complicated. Uh because TJ is awful. Yeah. Um he's just constantly a manipulative little shit towards Stacy in particular. He does the whole thing where he like talks Stacy out of his new coat. And I was just like I had that that sort of sensation that i i was like i hope this character sort of like gets some kind of comeuppance right Mm -hmm. because he's just constantly taking advantage of the people around him and letting other people take the fall for things he does like when when he lets uh mama believe that stacy is the one who like snuck cheat notes into the test or whatever Mm -hmm. but of course once it all started to go the way that it went i had that very much like oh no not like that no (laughs) I, I just wanted him to look stupid or something or or like for the story to end at that moment where he's like, but before they go to the store, he's bragging about his friendship, you know, quote, quote unquote, uh, with R.W. and Melvin. And Stacy is very much like, nope, you're you're not my friend anymore, TJ. Go away. And And there's that moment where like, TJ kind of stares after uh, Stacy and the other Logan kids with that moment of like perhaps realization that he has lost something valuable Mm -hmm. there. Like if that was, I was fine with that. I was like, good. Screw you, TJ. (laughs) But yeah, once, once all of that started to unravel, like it's not that it's not a thing that I would want to happen Mm -hmm. to anyone really, but like it definitely was not. Yeah, I don't. I feel like the, I feel like the book definitely did some things like this, where, where there's that mix of like a thing that feels a little bit cathartic, 
at least observing in a you know audience of a story fashion with the the presence of or at least the risk of like horrific consequences yeah that that all you know because cassie even says that she has sort of like a a weird conflicting bunch of emotions about feeling bad for tj even though you know he's done awful stuff to her and her family or mostly her family i think the thing that stuck out to me amidst all of that was where mama was trying to tell papa not to take the gun and how you know him showing up to that situation with a gun was just going to get him killed and that's still relevant Mm -hmm. that's still an issue to this day if a black person has a gun they're in danger even if a gun is ostensibly for you know self-protection it's it puts a target on you it's it was you know 1933 is not particularly different than 2023 in a great many ways yeah uh and it really kind of puts the the myth of the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun because you know papa is trying to go out save his own life and save the life of a literal child again uh Stacy and TJ, they're, they're 14, not 12, but they're 14 years old. That is not old enough to be like, well, I mean, no age is old enough to, to be lynched. That's, that's not a thing. But again, literal children. But black children, especially young black men, aren't really allowed to have a childhood in the same way. But it's just like, but regardless, Papa is the American definition of a good guy with a gun. He is trying to protect his family. He's trying to protect a child. A child that did his family wrong, but it doesn't matter. It, he is still a child. And if he had gone out there with a gun, literally all that would have occurred is even more violence. He would have been bringing violence down on himself. And even if the lynch mob had come for him and Mr. Morrison, they probably would have left mama big mama in the kids alone if he went out there with a gun everybody would have been targeted so it's just again that rhetoric that belief that just shows that i mean it's never actually real but how how very white centric that belief is because as you said if it is a black man with a gun it the assumption is never that he is the good guy And we just, it may have been more egregious in 1933 with, again, a literal lynch mob. But then we look at police violence and it, and, and the egregiousness starts to really like fade away. Like, no, not tarred and feathered, but beaten or knelt on. And, and you see, as you said, there's, we're, we're 90 years past what Cassie is going through. And while we have made incredible strides, there is still a lot of that violence uh, and racism under the surface or not really under the surface anymore. And you can just see it in so many different aspects of the way that society and the media interact with blackness. Yeah, if this story was about a, you know, poor white family in rural Mississippi in the 30s, it absolutely would have probably ended with, you know, uh, a bit of a shootout, maybe 
some some asshole or two actually dying and then everybody being like okay let's let's leave them alone uh because they shoot guns good and we would all <laughs> applaud and be like yeah that's that's the way it is you know you protect your own that's that's the that's the american way i guess but it absolutely couldn't happen that way a lot of what we consider, a lot of what makes up the American dream and the American myth is solidly contained just to white people. It's not the same. Like, again, Manifest Destiny and the Homesteading Acts, those were specifically for white people. Black people, native folks, uh, Mexicans need not apply. So all of it has always just been in the hands of whites, but we still have this idea that no, it's for everybody. And that's not true. In the sequel, uh, let the circle be unbroken. We do find out what happens to TJ. I don't know if you guys want spoilers for that, but another main plot point is Cassie and mama helping this woman learn about, uh, uh, about the Mississippi Constitution because she wants to vote. And in this time period, there were several uh, things that you, you had to do to be eligible to vote, one of which was pay your poll taxes, which you did not have to do if your grandfather was allowed to vote, which is where we get the clause grandfathered in. So mm. if, yeah, if your grandfather was allowed to vote, at this time, the only people whose grandfathers could have voted were, were white men. Because, you know, this is like uh, Cassie's, I believe Cassie's dad was born into slavery as well. Like he was two years old when the, the Civil War happened. So obviously everybody's grandfathers were firmly in the time where bef before the amendment that allowed black men to vote. Uh, so if your grandfather uh, couldn't, you had to pay a poll tax and you also had to take a test. And the tests were horrifically unfair. At one point, one of the tests th that they mentioned in the book was somebody pulled out a jar of jelly beans and was like, how many jelly beans are in this jar? Oh, you guessed wrong. You can't vote. And if you look up historical uh, records of what those tests were, they were written specifically to be impossible because you definitely should. It's uh, They were just, you know, even today with a college education, you can't parse what they're asking for. And that's deliberate. But this woman goes. And she, um, her poll taxes are paid and she goes to take the test to, uh, to, to vote. And even though she has studied and can recite various parts of the Mississippi Constitution, she loses the vote. And then Mr. Granger, who found her here, and she's a sharecropper on the land, on his land, they in fact ask, who do you belong to? as in whose land do you share crop on? And she replies, Mr. Granger's. So they go and fetch him. And there's all this other stuff that's happening with unions and, and everything else. And at the end of it, Harlan Granger hops into his car and looks at not only the old woman who had voted, but also her younger relation who had brought her here and looks at them both. And he's like, I want y'all's off my land by tomorrow morning for the audacity of, of trying to vote again you have now been evicted take all of your families all of your belongings figure out what you're doing jesus yeah <laughs> if uh roll of thunder hear my cry is a great book that 
introduces you to a lot of the concepts, uh, a lot of the ideas of institutional racism and kind of the violence that you can see outside of the law. Let the Circle Be Unbroken is a really good look at the way that the different laws were written to allow so much institutional racism because it shows all the specific channels how it can take form in all these different completely legal and political channels again it's a great read it's a great read it's especially a good read if you like to cry like if if you're here for crying it's a good book I wanted to touch on one other thing, which I thought really mirrored current events before we go into background information about the book. And that was, we we talked about it for a moment, uh, the scene where Mr. Granger and some of the school board comes in to sit in on what Mama's teaching. And that immediately made me think of the whole debate about CRT and stuff right now. And then it made me think, oh my gosh, I bet this is one of the books that people want to ban Mm -hmm. because they don't want people knowing about the actual history of this stuff. And sure enough, it's, it's on, it's frequently on the challenged list for a potential banning. Oh yeah. I have to imagine that it's always been in that state for sure. They try to, you know, censor what people can teach then and still happening. Mm-hmm. That that stuck out to me. You know, so I just pulled up kind of like some of the banned book lists, and I'm actually seeing now that through my school system, we we actually read a fair number of books like this. Uh, we read To Kill a Mockingbird, which is you know it, again it does have that that white lens because Scout is white, but it does have that very great courtroom scene. Uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I read in high school. To Kill a Mockingbird, I read in sixth grade. Huck Finn, I read in high school. The K, which again had an old white, an old black man and a young white boy who have been deserted on an island, and about the the young white boy goes is blind from an injury and needs the black man to take care of him, and he starts very racist, and then as he goes on, he's like, "Oh, this black guy's also a human. Who knew?" And then at the end, they return to white racist society. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. So actually, apparently, my school system had a decent number of of books that do explore racism. Uh, We also had uh, Scott Dell's Island of the Blue Dolphins, which at least touched on uh, what happened to the indigenous population. So, all right, shout out to Plainville, Connecticut for apparently having a very woke book list in their elementary, uh, their public school systems before being woke was cool. Good job, tiny (laughs) Connecticut town. Proud of you. I, you know, I'm going to say I'm surprised because my, my very... My view of Connecticut is not particularly friendly. <laughs> That's fair. Neither's mine. In general. <laughs> it's a very affluent white place that I just assumed would not be particularly progressive yeah. in that way. No, hard same. Yeah, we, we read um we did read To Kill a Mockingbird, but it wasn't until high school. And I think maybe that like the kind of 
trial plot is maybe the thing I was sort of expecting to eventually crop up when I was starting into this book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, definitely not much else. I do, I do think, I feel like I remember um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, among others, probably also the K, maybe, um, just being like featured on like posters and stuff the library would have up of like, you know, like New Barrier World winners or something, um, something like that, right? Uh, so they maybe existed, but they weren't being assigned. And I was a stupid child. <laughs> and if I wasn't specifically assigned to read a book or knew like what the book was about, because maybe it was a part of a series that I had experience with or something at that point, I put a lot of stock into titles. Mm-hmm. And so I very seldom read books that were named after people, unless their names were really cool or interesting. (laughs) I mostly read books that the titles were either something that sounded like an interesting plot point or like maybe an item or something that sounded engaging enough, right? So I feel almost certain that I at some point became aware that Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry was a book. I didn't look into it any further because I was like, I don't care about storms. <laughs> oh, no. It doesn't sound interesting. That's kind of my experience with Island of the Blue Dolphins. I was like, I don't like dolphins. <laughs> Moving on. So I've, I've never read that. Well, we kind of got down this route uh, talking about banned book lists, but uh, are there, do we want to circle back and have any background notes? No, we haven't talked about like the author, for example. Mm. Uh, this was written in 1977. The author herself, uh, Mildred, I'm bare, I'm very not good with French uh, looking words often. Um, let's see. Mildred DeLouise. That sounds good. Mildred DeLouise Taylor. Uh, she was born in 1943 in Mississippi. So, you know, this is a, a familiar geographical region to her at the, at, at the very least, even though she was, she was born 10 years after the events of this took place. Like Nuance already said, it's a sequel. And it won the 1977 Newbery Medal. When did you say the most recent one came out of this series? You said like 2004, I think. 2020. 2020. 2020. Holy moly. <laughs> uh, well, so actually, let me rephrase. So it is her most recently published book. I think All the Days Past and All the Days to Come is included in my version. I'll have to check. So definitely The Land, uh, which I know, which is actually the prequel to Song of the Trees and Roll of Thunder, was was published in 2001. Let me just check to see if this is also... Oh, yep. Uh, it's the conclusion of the Logan story. I was surprised, although I shouldn't have been, that there's only ever been one film adaptation of this back in 1978 it hasn't been adapted beyond that and that's absurd this would be a great book to to adapt in the right hands yeah i mean this this feels like instant instant movie movieable piece of media i don't i don't understand someone needs to get on that but it's definitely one that needs a black director i i, I mentioned hidden figures as um as a movie that had had concerned me greatly uh waiting for violence to happen 
But the end of the movie, I'm just spoiling everything for people. I'm sorry. Uh, the end of the movie after she has been brought in so she can do all of the calculations to make sure that the rocket, the launch goes off okay. In the movie, she she leaves and then um, to, to go back down. Uh, well, the door is closed on her uh, and she just stands there for a moment and you're like, everything she's done She's still not allowed in the room where it happens. And then in the movie, the door opens and What's-His-Face holds his hand out to her and she's brought in. But that isn't what happened. Historically, mm. she, uh, she did everything that, that happened in the movie. She, she made those calculations. And then uh, she was pushed out of the room and she was sent back downstairs in with the, the, black, the, the black calculus pool. And she listened to it on the radio. And it feels so good in the movie theater when you're watching it and your, your heart is breaking and the door opens and she's brought in and you're like, yes, it's cathartic. It's good. But that isn't what happened. And so we get this happy ending where, again, the white guy comes in and saves the day and brings her in. And he didn't do that. And I would be furious if Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry ends with like TJ getting away or um, I I'd be furious with this happy ending because that the book itself ends with the phrase, I cried for TJ. I cried for TJ and the land. And you need to have that happen. And if somebody were to come in and just like whitewash it up and, and give it a happy ending, I might set something on fire. I would definitely flip a table. Was hidden? Was the Hidden Figures movie directed by a white person? Yeah, Theodore Melfi. He's of Italian descent. Uh, in the Green Book, this is not that podcast. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, during the like late the end of the of the book, I was kind of idly thinking, oh, this whole everyone trying to put out the fire thing. If this were just sort of like made by a big Hollywood studio for the most mass audience that they could get, this would be a moment where everybody is like, but we're all actually a community and we're going to help each other, not totally like let everything burn down. And we'll realize that we're not that different, actually. And I don't want to see that version. Yeah. And again, there is a plot point in the later in Let the Circle Be Unbroken where they are trying to start a union. Some folks come down and they're trying to start a union. And they're like, it's going to be an integrated union because white folks and black folks, they, if, if we try to keep it to only to segregated and only one race, we're not going to have the people, we're not going to have enough people to make it important. And at the same time that Aunt Letty is, is trying to vote, the uh, union comes in with this whole integrated kind of parade of people who have lost their land and their farms and have been kicked off a sharecropping land. Uh, and it's just this huge parade and they, they pull into the courthouse and they're like, we want our due. We want justice. And Mr. Granger, the worst person in the world <laughs> comes out and he makes a speech and the speech is, Oh, so y'all are interested in, Marry integrated marrying and schooling and all this stuff to drive a wedge. And the uh, the white union um, 
guy, he's, he's like, no, we're not talking about any of that. That's not what's happening here. We are integrated for this specific thing, but people don't listen. And Mr. Granger manages to break up not only a union, you know, a, a union demonstration, but the union itself, because he's able to just ply on those, th- th- those racist fears and, and internal beliefs. So again, if you have, you, th- there's that, that happy ending where we're all a community, except that doesn't happen in that book. And it explicitly is undermined in the next book because there is not, there's never that idea of we are one community. It is always, we are separate. We cannot be together. And like you said, if we get anything else, it's just, it's, it's, it rings hollow. It is inauthentic. I, this, this episode is not going to come out for a while, but I feel like it's probably fairly pertinent to point out that we are recording this episode about a week after everything sucks. Uh, about a week after Tennessee just got rid of marriage equality, including interracial marriage. Yep. So everything's really raw. And the book is always timely, no matter what. Mm-hmm. How does this fit in with your conceptualization of the Deep South in this time period? Did it change anything? Did it highlight anything? Did, do you feel like you learned more? You have a better understanding? Or is this still just like, yeah, this is pretty much what I expected. It's the Deep South. It's, it's 1933. Like, how did, how did this affect your understanding, if at all? I I think it gave me more perspective to be able to sort of visualize a little bit more even though I acknowledge that I I will not ever really know what what it's like. And it is really about what I expected for, you know, that time period. I guess I want to point out that I'm from incredibly rural Maine and so I I think that we often get this perspective of it's just bad in the South with the media that we take in. And I think that this this story could have also happened in the area that I grew up in. It wouldn't have surprised me had this happened geographically anywhere in America, I guess is what I'm saying. Because I don't, because of where I'm from, I don't have this this illusion that it was only ever bad in the South. Can I actually hop on that with a personal anecdote? Sure. So I know I mentioned about how I faced like racial slurs and everything, not really violence, but actually in my family tree. So uh, my great, my great, great grandfather was a black stable hand for an affluent and prominent white family. And the daughter of this prominent and affluent white family ended up Pregnant, out of wedlock, knocked up by a black stable hand, and he vanished. And we do not know whether he ran for his own safety or if he's somewhere in a shallow grave. And we have like 50-50 odds on which one it is. And again, that is in, that's in Connecticut. My my family's been there for generations, but that is in Connecticut. And it yes, it was the 18 my my great grandfather was born in uh 1898. So this happened in 1897, but it happened in the enlightened north. And 
the daughter was allowed to raise her son, my, my great-great-grandfather John, and uh, she was allowed to raise him until he was about four, and then his skin, uh, he started kind of darkening up, uh, which is how my grandfather described it, uh, but he, his, his mixed-race heritage started to really show, and the child was taken from her and given to his aunt, who had also been working for that family as a cook and she was told to raise him now that they could no longer deny that he was uh, half black so you're exactly correct that this could happen anywhere because it happened in connecticut in in a probably at least a suburban area so it definitely could have happened anywhere else uh well i can answer this question question uh also Factually speaking, this is pretty much the the perception I had of the Deep South in this time period, even though I didn't really have that context when I was, you know, in in grade school or at least, you know, younger grade school. As I got older, I uh, not only was, was exposed to people who would not necessarily just recite the Virginia SOLs to me. Um, but also just got more interested in history myself. And so, and then especially like, as I have gotten older and as I went to college and learned how kind of skewed some of my earlier education had been and things like that, like I, I I have a pretty solid like picture, I think of the facts of this era in history in this part of the country. But I do think that this book has been, I guess, the most powerful thing I've encountered in terms of giving me a person who has never experienced systemic racism or discrimination myself a little bit of a glimpse into what living in in this place and time is is like, right? In in, in the small way that it can. So yeah, I think academically pretty much what i expected but uh emotionally i think presented a lot of insight that i have not encountered before yeah that's that's a more eloquent eloquent way of how i feel (laughs) how does the depiction of agriculture kind of affect the various characters white and black i wanted to jump on this because i found that aspect of things incredibly interesting horrible but interesting because the there's a there's a section where Granger is threatening them about how, you know, maybe the price of cotton will change. Just you know, maybe randomly, uh, and it made me realize that even them having the land and having this farm is threatened by the fact that white people control the prices, and all of the credit systems and everything is just incredibly precarious and balanced on just the the good mood of these white people that control the entire agricultural system mm-hmm. and in in a very very small amount of space they really showed that incredibly effectively yeah um i i agree with what rin said <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I don't feel like I have anything like super insightful to say to this uh, particular question. 
Brandon's always much better at at vocalizing things that have to do with like emotions and things. And I glom onto silly details about minutia and day-to-day life. I mean, hey, I don't think they're silly details. And I also glom onto minutia, just stupider minutia. <laughs> I'm pretty sure neither of you glom on stupider minutia. For one thing, if it's in a book, it's generally important. So I'm an English major. Ha, I win. Oh. <laughs> ah, well. I'm outnumbered. I I'm outnumbered. I'm also an English major. <laughs> oh, no, let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you can, you two can have the podcast. I'll take my ecology major and <laughs> run away. <laughs> and again, something they get more into. Ren, I really think you would love uh, Let the Circle Be Unbroken because it is so grounded in history. They talk about how, like, in the late 20s, cotton was up to, I think, like 20, 30 cents a bail maybe i forget how much but it was good times and then the depression hit and it went all the way down to six cents and um now the the government is trying to say how much people can and cannot plant to try to keep the market from getting glutted at the same time we've also started importing egyptian cotton which is considered a higher quality cotton so it's just how the the way the market affects everybody the way you know you expect living on a farm that even if they're struggling for money to pay the bills or their mortgage they'd at least you know be set as far as food goes and and you find out yeah they have a kitchen garden and that helps but all the available land that they have pretty much is is sent to cotton which is a a, a crop does not benefit them as people it's only uses to be sold so just that interplay i find is fascinating there's also a um a thing that i guess i found slightly timely or 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 timeless maybe i'm not sure how the logans have relatively little land but they value it very much they they really value what they've got and to put a lot of stock into the fact that they have it and it's theirs. And Mr. Granger has a bajillion acres and he just wants more of it. Like, what's he going to do with it? And I'm like, you know, I guess rich folks always suck. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the things they bring out is it's Mr. Granger, his grandmother filled him up with ideas about the idyllic pre-Civil War South when all the land belonged to them. And during Reconstruction, the family had to sell off, I think, like a thousand acres. And Cassie's grandfather bought 200 acres. And then Mr. Jameson's uh, father bought a whole bunch more. And after they paid off the first 200 acres, the elder Mr. Jameson was, was starting to sell off his land. And he sold them 200 more acres. And the rest went to Mr. Granger. And Mr. Granger just sees those 400 acres that don't belong to him, but used to. They used to belong to that family uh, in the good old days. And to make matters worse, they belong to a black family. That just kills him inside. And, you know, on the one hand, yay, good, you deserve it. But it's just like he uses every trick in the book that he can think of trying to play on what he assumes their ignorance will be to get that land back. And it's just like, 
it kills him inside. Which, yay, good. <laughs> but as as you were saying, an extra 400 acres isn't going to change his life at all. Yeah, it's such a small fraction of what he has already. Mm-hmm. So it's purely spite. It's like spite in that that idea of the glorious Golden South where everything was great until the Civil War. And I still know people who are kind of raised like that, sadly. No, generations later. I I one side of my family, I'm not going to go too far into this, but um one side of my family who my parents have basically not associated with since I was very, very young, and I'm sure this is why, has and values exceptionally our Confederate ancestry. So Granger, particularly in that regard, kind of hit me like, oh, this is, I sort of know people that are like this, or or at least know people who are like this but don't have money, who have generationally been fed this this increasingly mythic story of what stuff was like in you know before the civil war and they just won't like let that go and so we don't talk to them <laughs> an interesting detail in the book that gets less than a line is talking about how as they pass the Jefferson Davis school um mm-hmm. the the flags the top flag is the Mississippi state flag the second flag is the United States flag which is by the flag code illegal the the United States flag is supposed to be on top and that just kind of goes to show exactly their mindset and who they are they are loyal to Mississippi before the, they are loyal to the US and you know the they uh the just the idea that this state and the state's history and the confederacy matter way more than the US as a whole well and the school is named after the president of the confederacy you know yep. so like clearly important <laughs> to them i had to go back and double check because i thought i remembered them saying and and they did that the um the state flag had the emblem of the confederacy on it yep up in up in the corner yeah gross well we are pivoting uh pretty pretty heavily from this book to our next read which is gonna be a brandon pick yeah i was gonna say i don't i mean it's not the same subject matter at all anyhow um (laughs) It might, we might find that it still like depresses us to talk about, albeit probably not to the same degree. It depends on how much I remember it clearly and how fascist it is. But I, I think I think it's time that I have to like sadly pop the cork on my uh, military sci-fi phase, which comes with lots of authors who are problematic white men. And we're gonna go with Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. I haven't read it for a long, long time. It might not be as problematic as my brain thinks it is, but like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold my breath, honestly. We're gonna have to do like a like a pie chart or something once we get to maybe like episode twenty five or something about how many of these books that we've read that we read as kids ended up having horribly problematic authors. Ender's game. <laughs> I mean, as a kid who read mostly sci fi, 
I feel like every every like big name in at least mid 20th century sci-fi was a problematic white dude, right? To, to varying degrees. Actually, I don't know. I don't know much about Clark. Maybe he wasn't. Well, we'll find out. But maybe I just don't know. <sighs> Again, uh, so um, thank you so much, Nuance, for joining us. Do you have anything that you want to pitch or tell people where they can find you on social media or anything like that? Uh, you can find me at Shadowraven, S-H-A-D-O-W-R-A-V-Y-N, because I picked that name back in high school in my 32nd Wiccan phase, uh, and it's just lingered, um, where I talk a lot about racism, modern politics, transphobia, Sailor Moon, <laughs> TTRPGs. It's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag of, of content. I do have a fairly unused Twitch channel. That's uh, twitch.tv <laughs> slash booksomewench, B-O-O-K-S-O-M-E-W-E-N-C-H. That has the best name. My Dog Ate My Book Report is hosted and produced by Ren and Brandon and edited by Derek Valen and Daisy McNamara. The music used in this podcast was licensed by Epidemic Sound. Transcripts are generated by otter.ai. Our icon image was illustrated by Cindy Lau. Have a question or comment for the team? You can find us on our website, which uh, links to all of our socials at dogatemybookreport.blueberry.net. Blueberry has no E's. Or by emailing at dogatemybookreport at gmail. We would be super excited to know what books you loved growing up. And I'm just going to leave it there because this episode's already too long. Yeah. I'm going to make it just like five seconds longer. This is actually the first poem I ever memorized. Oh, nice. So uh, it is a spiritual. I don't know the, the tune or anything, but. Roll of thunder, hear my cry over the water by and by old man coming down the line, whip in hand to beat me down. But I ain't going to let him turn me around.